UA's podcast is funded by me, James and Pow. Together with contributions and help we get from you, our listeners. You can contribute to any amount you like, however often you like, or by donating your time. Just go to uxpodcast.com slash support. UX Podcast Episode 283. Hello, I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening to us from every corner of the world, from Belarus to North Macedonia. And today, we are geeking out on parts of the user experience that we believe many UXers pay too little attention to. More specifically, core web vitals, which you may have heard of or maybe even used. I have. I've heard of it. Good one, James. Thank you, Pat. Katie Penius is a software engineer at Google and is part of the Chrome team and in particular works with performance and how that impacts the user's experience. And also Katie is, is really good at understanding the target group and explaining this for anyone who may not be familiar. So get prepared to learn some new stuff. So Katie, um, for the people out there who don't know what it is, can you just start off by explaining a little bit about what this thing called Core Web Vitals is? Yes, yeah, so Core Web Vitals was announced probably about a year or two ago. Um, and the idea behind it was that in the performance community, um, you know, for a long time, there's been a lot of discussion over like, which metrics should you be measuring? You know, everyone says like, you know, it's great for user experience when the, the website loads faster, but like, how do you actually measure that? And just like the project of picking like a way of measuring, because there's all of these different metrics you can choose, like is a project of in and of itself. And so a lot of things is like, why don't we just, you know, do some research and, and like pick, uh, and they ended up picking three metrics. Um, and all of these, the three metrics were picked specifically because they all tie back to a different aspect of the user experience. So the three core web vitals are largest contentful paint. So it measures the time at which the largest like element, visible element on the page is uh, rendered to the user. So like a lot of times, like if you have a big hero image or like the big, like you have a huge block of text, it's measuring that moment. Um, and we kind of think about that, that moment that that occurs is probably around the same moment that a user would be like, yeah, like this is when the page became useful to me. Okay. So um, it's like, know, when, like, it's that ta-da moment. It's like when I, when a big bit kind of suddenly jumps out from behind the curtain, that's kind of what Yeah. Happens. It's like, oh, I can like see the image that I came here for. I can, right. I can read the article. Um, so that's the largest contentful paint measures. Um, first input delay is measuring the phenomena. If you've ever been on a website and like you're clicking and it doesn't do anything. And as a result, you probably start like clicking again and you're really tapping the button. If it's not responding, um, that would be an example of input delay. And so it's measuring whether there's that input delay occurring. Um, and to provide a little bit of context, why that delay occurs, if it does occur, typically indicates that there's like basically more JavaScript being loaded on the page than that particular device can handle. And wow. so as a result, like 
like the the device has to finish processing the JavaScript before it can get around to going back and, and responding to that user action. So you're going to tend to see more input delay on lower end devices. On a very high end device, you probably won't encounter it very often. So that's always something to think about when you're designing stuff. It may work really well on your shiny high end laptop, but on a low end phone, it may be a very different experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then lastly, cumulative layout shift um, measures all the layout shifts that occur more or less over the lifespan of the page. We've actually now limited it. It only looks at the max amount of layout shifts that occur within five seconds. But um, at a high level, a layout shift is when like content jumps around on a page like unexpectedly and like in a way that you don't want. So uh, the best example of this is if you've like ever been like reading an article and all of a sudden it jumps around. And a lot of times that's because like all of a sudden it, an ad was loaded or inserted or another common cause of this is just that there was an image it was really slow to load and it pops in and it pushes everything else around on the page i think of also that the thing we see a lot now is the the cookie banners so you the page you see the page and then suddenly like your screen's filled with something asking if you can accept the cookies or not yes um perfect example of that um i it's we're only like three minutes into the podcast to go into the weeds, but like that's something we've talked a lot about because you see it, uh, especially in Europe, you know, every site has a cookie banner thing. And probably at least as of a year or two ago, I'd say the most common way of implementing cookie banners was to put the banner at the top of the page. And a lot of people like wouldn't reserve space for the banner. So when the banner loads, everything on the page, you know, jumps around. And so like one of the things we talk about is like one of the ways to fix that is just preserve space. Like, you know, how much space the cookie banner is going to take up, like work that into your, your layout when the page initially loads, or um, you can use like a different style of uh, displaying the cookie notice. So like using a modal that goes on top of the page, or um, what I'm seeing a lot more of now is like overlays at the bottom of the screen and putting them at the bottom of the screen is great because they're not going to push anything down on the page when they load. So, um, so that's that's the background of Core Web Vitals, um, and uh, now uh, Google Search takes Core Web Vitals performance into account when determining search rankings. Right. So the better the better the metrics are, the better you will perform in Google Search as well. Yes. Uh, the rationale being like, if you're doing well in these metrics, it's indicating a good user experience, and users are going to enjoy that and find that more useful than a bad user experience. So. so that made me think of uh, one website I actually, I have many websites, but one website I have where I purposefully uh, fade in the content because it's supposed to give this calm experience. So would that actually be detrimental to the performance in Google search? You may be getting penalized uh, on your LCP. So from that. an experience, I'm trying to f make the experience better for what I'm trying to communicate to the user. But from a Google perspective with the metrics, that's not good. Well, Per, I think now's a good point to <laughs> maybe ask you. He's like, how, how did you come to what's a good value and what's a bad value? I mean, there's these three metrics now you've, you've described for us. Um, but I, I guess, because it's Google, I guess you've got uh, some research behind that of, of why those things in particular impact the user experience um, from, a, from a, a data point of view, I guess, a research point of view. 
So how these different thresholds came about is a mixture of looking at existing UX research. So for instance, um, there's been a lot of research over the years showing that for a system to feel responsive to a user, um, it should be responding in under 100 milliseconds. Um, and then uh, for stuff like LCP and, and largest contentable paint and cumulative layout shift, um, it was kind of looking at existing performance and then all also testing uh, with users what what they felt like was a good experience. Hmm. And I, I guess you've also seen in the search results that, I mean, normally Google puts a lot of weight into how many people bounce back to search results quickly from um, from from a page. So presumably I, then... You, I don't you... think that was in the data set just because I know from working at Google, like they hmm. try to keep like search and browser very separate. So like right. I'm like I'm on the Chrome team. Oh, and so yeah. okay. like hmm. I like, am, you know, I know how to like Google for like the search blog where I know they make their announcements, but yeah. um, on our side, so the team that developed the, the Core Web Vitals metrics is on the Chrome side. And so right. we don't have access to that data yeah. Um, okay yeah well interesting though that's um yeah where the um the experience that was a pair of going to your point about your website i mean yes you're you're trying to make a better experience but i i guess ultimately if that's something that does sure to be a better experience and i guess they'll adjust the core web there are other metrics that will actually yeah balance that up probably I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah, and it could be, it would all come down to whether that text that you're talking about that you fade in, yeah. whether it's the LCP element. And it might be, it might not be. Right. Um, there are so many abbreviations now to learn as well. So FID, CLS, LCP. Well, what everybody loves, more, more, more acronyms that they need to memorize. But essentially, I do think that this is not something that most UXers are paying attention to. What what do you think are the most common mistakes that we are doing as we're designing websites? Um, so the first thing that popped into my head are images because you know pretty much every website has images, and I obviously uh, have a biased viewpoint. I come from the from the standpoint of really being into performance, but I do think uh, it would be useful for more people to just think about like what trade offs and decisions they're making about images. So the example I'm thinking of is I know sometimes like when working with design, they're like yeah, let's put like a this the most high res, largest image possible on the page. And then, you know, me with kind of my performance has like, no, like, why don't we do something smaller? And uh, there's not like a single right answer. So for instance, like say you're a retail site and you want to display the product and particularly like when the user has clicked through to the product views, like, yeah, like probably it's definitely the time and place for a really high resolution image. But maybe on the product listing page where users are scrolling through really quick, it might actually be better for the user experience to have a lower res image because it's going to load faster. They're going to be able to kind of quickly sort through more things. So uh, thinking about how you use images and what your goals for those images are um, and just realizing that there's sometimes a trade-off between you know, image size versus how quickly it loads. Um, also thinking like uh, some of the components that kind of come up again and again and uh, looking at uh, core vitals are uh, carousels. Um, I think carousels are actually very interesting on many levels from performance, from like accessibility. Um, so I think if uh, your site has a carousel kind of uh, looking at it um, and, you know, seeing whether it's 
performant, uh, whether it's a good user experience, and also like whether it's even necessary. I know if you <laughs> kind of start digging into a lot of the, the research on carousels, mm. a lot of the studies say like it's just kind of like eating up uh, room on the homepage. And I think a lot of times they're used to like appease different departments, like, you know, one team wants to be on the homepage and another one wants to be on the homepage. And so we make them all happy by just putting exactly. everything in a carousel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, I think, I think it's over 10 years ago now since <laughs> I started my campaign against carousels. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it must be a decade ago. I wrote a blog article about I think carousels. we have an episode talking about just don't do carousels. Yeah, I think we, I think we might do. But, uh, well, but you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, I having yeah. looked at a lot of carousel implementations, what we tend to find mm. is, um, they're like, I mean, if you think about carousels, they tend to have big images. You're loading lots of big images. Um, sometimes the the way the slides transition, like not to get too nitty gritty, um, but they aren't implemented in a very efficient way. Um, if you're familiar with like CSS transforms and using um, uh, composited uh, animations, like a lot of times the way the slides are transitioned from a code perspective just isn't um, very efficient. So uh, a lot of times I think sites, if they could, would be actually be better off just eliminating carousels. Um, uh, another thing that I think is interesting to think about is how your site uses fonts. Uh, I think we, like sometimes maybe just me, like you kind of forget about your fonts, you set them once and maybe you're not changing them all the time, but um, they are something that gets loaded on every single page. And uh, something we've noticed with Web Vitals now that we started measuring these layout shifts is that um, layout shifts occurring because a font hasn't loaded yet is actually like a, ah. a, a thing that comes up a lot. Wow. Um, because uh, to kind of dive into like how the browser works, if the font hasn't loaded yet, it will try to like estimate the amount of space it needs using like essentially like a default font. Well, particularly if you're using like a web font, like you probably wanted to use the web font because it's a little bit interesting and different. It probably takes up a different amount of space than whatever, you know, Arial or whatever it used to estimate. And so when the web font loads, it kind of causes everything to like jump around a bit because it takes up a different amount of space. Yeah, that makes complete um, sense. Of course, if, you, if you've got a site that wants to use its, its brand font and yeah, and you've got your heading and the heading kind of sits nicely uh, on one row, on one line, and then suddenly your brand font actually loads and there are much much more wider characters then now we've got to wrap a word around to the second line so suddenly now that that element that's reserved for the the title the h h1 or whatever on the page is now boom massive and everything else suddenly moves my god that's i can imagine that causes a huge amount of disruption to the page yes and like as you're saying like the top of the page the brand font it, it makes sense you're like okay maybe yeah. i'll use like a system font for the rest of the stuff but it's our brand so like you know we want to use the web font and it loads and like i see this a lot like maybe there's like you know drop down menus and navigation at the top and everything just kind of shifts a little bit when that 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 font loads in. So um, really thinking about fonts um, and how you use them. And I think if you can in some places, um, there's now uh, you know good APIs for just using whatever the user's uh, default system font is. You know, that saves you from having to, to load a font um, and paying attention to how you use fonts. Um, and then infinite scroll is another uh, interesting one. Uh, just uh, taking, you know, paying attention to how that that's that's implemented. So those are a couple of things that come to mind. I was thinking now about as a designer, what kind of, 
I suppose, what kind of questions or what kind of, how would you approach some of these things from a design point of view to, you know, if they think that there's developers that are presumably going to have a lot of knowledge about these things. And if, if I'm a designer and I'm sat here creating a, a, a particular view or flow, um, what kind of questions are you, or what kind of things are useful for me to bring up at certain points to make sure I, I catch it? Yeah. Um, one would be like, uh, like if I had a designer that raised it, it's like, oh, this is amazing. Um, sometimes I think uh, there are opportunities to, like maybe if you like tweaked a design slightly, the developer is going to be able to go out and implement that maybe without using any external libraries or third party scripts. Um, and kind of being like open to the discussion, like, oh, is there any like little adjustments that we can make where it's like, 90, you're making you're building 95% of what was in the initial you know sketch or anything, but might be able to uh, allow the developer to build it essentially in a way that's much more efficient. So um, one of the you know big things people talk about that are a big source of just kind of websites being slow in general is having to use third-party scripts and third-party libraries, and so sometimes. Uh, you can take a step back and figure out if there's like a way to not rely on those um, that will serve you well in the long term. I, I think it's true. I mean, I think about sometimes where you you end up in a, I suppose you end up in a bit of a UX corner sometimes. You've got something you've really got to solve and you're trying to work out how you design a component to do it. And you you know full well that this is going to be a complex component. And But you, you, you're in a corner and you end up having to say, look, we have to do this and then the developer goes whoa i have no idea how i'm going to do that and then suddenly you've you've created a monster <laughs> it's a monster usability wise and it's a monster coding wise oh. and they pull in a library which also then makes it yeah. fast yeah 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 so how, how how do i get the uh understanding and empathy to to realize <laughs> and, and test this as a designer how do i really get on with understanding how slow it can be to to for these images to load or or, or stuff like that um, I, if you have the ability to do so, I think, you know, trying to use a lower end device to load your code, you know, mm. occasionally maybe before you ship something, pull it up or, you know, even if uh, that would be ideal, like, you know, kind of, uh, integrating that into kind of the workflow. But I just even find, you know, maybe at the holidays, like I'm helping family members with their computers and like they're, they're slower than my computer. And it's always like a very informational experience because um, all these issues that I find, I don't tend to run into it on a daily basis. I experience them. And I think it, you know, increases your empathy. Yeah. So, um, and I guess if that isn't an option, um, one thing you can look into um, is in dev tools, you can kind of simulate the experience of being on a slower um, device or having a slower network connection. So that's like uh, a quick quick fix that you can try that is still super useful. Try adjusting the, the CPU settings, try adjusting the network settings, um, and you may find that the, the experience is very different. Yeah. All right, yeah, you can throttle the CPU, can't you, in DevTools and, and yeah, make it, and even the simulated bandwidth, yeah, so you can make it f seem more like how it would be. I really like that device. because yeah. I've heard that before, but I rarely do it for some reason, but it's so simple you, because you actually have access to it on your computer. You can try it out. So that's something that really should put in the show notes to make sure that people test this out on your website. Yeah, because yes. we haven't mentioned that, that these, these core vitals, you know, where do you find them? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I guess the the answer is in the in the inspector in the dev tools um, that you have inside Chrome and um, Edge Chromium. 
So there's a couple ways. So if you go to the performance panel in um, DevTools, you can get the readings. There's also a Web Vitals extension, which sometimes like, I don't know if I'm feeling lazy, it's honestly like quite nice because you just kind of like tap on the extension and it shows them. Um, you can also um, use tools like Lighthouse or PageSpeed Insights. Um, so I'm not sure if you've heard of PageSpeed Insights or Lighthouse, but they're actually more or less the same tool. But um, Lighthouse, uh, you run on your computer, and then there's also a version, uh, and then when you run it on a website, or I shouldn't say on a website, you can go to the PageSpeed Insights website, type in the like website that you want to get measurements on, um, and that's called PageSpeed Insights. And I find that really handy, just like, I don't know, maybe you're in a meeting and you don't want to pull up DevTools and run Lighthouse, just go there. Um, and in addition to giving you information on the core vitals, it also gives you a lot of information like, oh, these images probably should be compressed more, or um, these third-party scripts are probably you know hurting the performance of your site, and just like a lot of useful information like that. I saw in Lighthouse, it would even tell you that there there's poor contrast between elements as well. Yes, so and also like great for yeah. accessibility. Like maybe you forgot to add an attribute or something; it didn't get you know caught in code review. So it's it's really good for stuff like that. So yeah, so so in so in the Lighthouse report, then as a designer, I can I can find a bit of feedback on quite a number of aspects of of the design I'm working on. Um, accessibility as well being a, um, a really useful thing to get some high-level details about accessibility. Yeah, I think all the time I had the categories it does are performance, accessibility, SEO, maybe like general best practices. So it's, it's much more than just performance. I was inside Lighthouse now, sorry. So yeah, I was, like, you know, I, did, I was doing the same thing. I started to kind of like open up and look, which is kind of, I suppose, typical me and you, Pai. You know, it's like, uh, oh, box of toys and kind of like diving in to start looking and, and seeing what you can find out and do. But um, I think when you do go into to Lighthouse and, and run the report, then it's presented to you in, I guess, uh, uh, what feels like maybe a um, sharing with um, people up the chain friendly way. <laughs> then it, yeah. Was that a good way of describing it? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, I mean, I think it, it's presented, I think, in a way that's relatively accessible. And what you may be alluding to, maybe not, is you get your Lighthouse score, which is yeah. prominent at the top of, of the page. And uh, I, will, I do want to note, um, although the Lighthouse score is really useful, when uh, Google search, and I mentioned this because a lot of people care about their search rankings, when Google search like uh, takes Core Vitals into account um, for determining search rankings, it's looking at the actual Core Web Vitals as measured from actual users. It's not yes. looking at your yeah. Lighthouse yeah. score. And I yeah. mentioned that because I think that's a big thing that a lot of people are confused about. And so they'll try to game Lighthouse and be like, oh, I have a hundred score in Lighthouse. Like I am set. And and at the end of the day, Google search doesn't care. Um, and so the idea is uh, Lighthouse is supposed to be like a helpful tool and it can really help you diagnose and identify things, issues and things to fix. But still the simulation. But, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've noticed and, as well that when, um, sometimes when I've, I've run it, um, you know, and I've had like a video. I've had a video playing at the same time because you know I'm I'm not concentrating completely on my job, so I'll have something else going in the background, and I'll notice the the scores will be different compared to when I've 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 run it and I've had nothing else running on my machine, and and that's I guess a consequence of the fact it's running 
really is running on my machine uh, and <laughs> is restricted by the processor and everything that I've got spare. And actually, that's like a great, I guess, anecdote about just, you know, measuring performance in general. It really can vary, you know, if you're even on the same machine, same website, depending on what else you're doing, the performance can vary. And so that kind of highlights how sometimes it can be tricky to truly accurately measure performance. Um, and that's why kind of what we recommend at the end of the day is that uh, sites um, set up ways to, to measure web vitals for their actual users. And this is totally something you can set up because uh, you should um, try to make efforts to maybe like accurately simulate how a user is using your website, you know, in development. But at the end of the day, like you just like can't fully predict. And I guess another example of this is like Lighthouse doesn't scroll down your page. Um, real users will. And so they're going to get different things. Or like, I think there's a tendency and this totally makes sense when you uh, just like, on your own go to test something, you're probably testing like the home page, you know, and assuming someone comes in at the top of the page. And maybe there is a totally different issue if a user comes in halfway down the page because they're, you know, coming into some content that is, uh, you know, linked to. And so it's really hard to like, fully predict all these different ways that your users will use the product. I mean, it's kind of like what you always talk about, like you have this idea, like, oh, this is totally how the user's going to use the product. And then like you go to user test and you're like, oh, like that didn't cross my mind. That's, that's an interesting way of doing it. And so like, it's kind of like that in a way with performance testing. So if you can get data from actual users, um, it's just going to be way more uh, uh, accurate. And Actually, I think the Lighthouse report should show that, I think, these days. They keep adding stuff to it. Um, let me pull it up. Um, the If not, um, there's what's called the Chrome User Experience Report, and it like shares this data, so you can go out and, and look it up. And that's actually the data set that um, Google Search uses. So it looks at that, says, you know, are people having you know, fast performing experiences, and that's uh, how it makes its its determination. So, oh, these are such extremely valuable points because that is, I mean, a lot of people also try and test accessibility with tools, and there are so many other tools that you can do. And you realize in the end, well, that doesn't really say anything until you test with real users. So, we good good reminder for all designers out there. Just it's so important. These these look like numbers, and it's so nice because you have this red number and this green number, and that's this site looks performs performs better than that site because it has better numbers. But you really don't know until you actually get out there in real life and test it. Yes, uh, totally agree. I think in that power. I mean, yeah, we've got these numbers at the top, and you say that yeah, they go green when they're up towards towards a hundred. I'm wondering though, is there is there any downside with trying to get a hundred score on all the metrics I presented there? Uh, in most cases, no. Um, generally when I see people like trying to make improvements to the White House score, uh, it helps performance as a whole. There's always going to be kind of those edge cases that like Lighthouse wasn't designed for, or, you know, like there's like, you know, general breast practices. And then there's like, uh, sometimes we're like, I'm totally going against best practices, but I know exactly what I'm doing and like yeah. there's this reason yeah. for it. It's like those kind of edge cases uh, Lighthouse is not built for. And so in those cases, um, maybe the, the Lighthouse score isn't the best reflection. I would say in general, when people improve their Lighthouse score, 
um, you see performance improvement. I'd say that's a great exercise. Particularly when you're a site like that's starting from like 20. Um, You know, like some sites have very low lighthouse scores. And if you bring that up to a 50 or a 70, I'm I'm guessing performance is also improved. So so basically what we're saying is if, if if you've got a score that isn't a green score, then you should be thinking about what conversations you can have with people in your organization about exactly. those goals. Mm. Yeah. And if mm. you if you on purpose have a low score or you you decide to not increase it because you know what you're doing, then you need to document that. <laughs> and I would say like I would doubt that's the case. Um, probably when you're like, uh, maybe it's like once you're starting to hit the 90s, maybe high 80s, and you're like, oh, it's recommending this thing, but mm. I'm not doing it. And I have a yeah. reason. But if you really are like on the the lower end, then yeah, I there's no excuses. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you've got to change. Yeah, I'm making a website that only three people can use. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but those three people are happy. Yeah. I had uh, one thing I noticed as well, Katie, is that they, in recent times, then I've seen that the um, the Lighthouse report is is pushing. Well, it's always pushed better images, like you've mentioned yourself, or more optimized um, images. But now something I've I've seen um, coming up is the is it WebP image format. Oh yeah. Okay. Now, um, what what's that, and is it is it safe for me to use? Um, so WebP, so for many years, uh, probably JPEG was the most popular and widely used image format and, uh, WebP has come about in the past couple years and, uh, compresses better. So I'm trying to think of the statistics off the top of my head, but I want to say it's going to give you like 20 to 30% smaller file sizes with, you know, equivalent image. And so that's something where if you do have a, a large image on your website, using a format like WebP um, can help you shave a little bit off uh, the, the file size. Um, another thing I will mention is that it's newer, but uh, it's always got pretty decent support is um, AVIF is an even newer image format that's coming out. Um, and I can't think of the statistics off the top of my head, but it actually compresses even better than WebP. So that's just like something to keep an eye out for. That's um, pretty exciting. So you think it's safe for me to, to to dig into that and maybe start suggesting that we use it? Yes. And actually, uh, the great thing with both you know AVIF or WebP or any image format, you know, if you're using the picture tag, it allows you to fall back to different image formats. So you don't have to worry about, oh, like if I choose this image format, like what if I have a user on, you know, Internet Explorer 8 or something, you can support everyone. Oh, that's really nice. I actually, I actually didn't really think about that, that you can, you don't have, it's not all or nothing. You can actually say, look, right, yeah, we're using PNGs because we feel comfortable with that because we've, we've, we know they work with all our target devices. But you can dare to roll out the newer formats too without breaking things. So as a UXer, if you're talking to a developer, you should probably make them aware of that as well because I'm I'm supposing now that all developers aren't aware of the new image formats and how you can use them. Yes. Um, yeah, and yeah, as I said, backwards compatibility is not an issue. Just to kind of explain how it works, you put like a picture tag on the page and then within the picture tag, um, basically put it like a source tag or an image tag and that allows you to list like multiple image formats. So I mean, you could be like, okay, we're going to put a WebP a PNG, but basically what the browser will do is once it hits that picture tag, it will 
uh, pick and load the first image that's in a format that it supports. So we'll just keep going down the list until it finds the format. So um, you do like if you uh, for compatibility, like probably want to have like a uh, at least one of the image formats and something that's very widely supported like JPEG, but it does allow you to experiment with new uh, image formats pretty easily. Um, and then I guess another thing to throw out on the topic of, of images, like sometimes um, we've kind of colloquially been calling them image CDNs, but like these image processing services, if you are working on a site that has a lot of images, um, those can be really useful because it just provides a really easy way um, to have some other service worry about um, compression and, and resizing and all that kind of stuff that um, doing it once here and there is fine, but doing it like in batches just can become very cumbersome. So that's another tool to look into. Yeah, of course, because if you're if you've got a site that's got like a product, you know, ten thousand products, and each product has like seven images, and you we're now suggesting that you well, have three versions of them for for backwards compatibility. That's an awful lot of images to um, to to handle. Yeah, so that sounds a good good suggestion. Sometimes, like if you're doing it manually, like there's obviously a place in time, like working on like a small site, but like. It's easy to forget like you're like oh like i should compress it but do you remember to compress it or resize it like there's a lot of little things that can be easy to forget so using something like that can just automate it you don't have to worry about it um okay wow wonderful. so many so many yeah. new things for designers to think about <laughs> well yeah no but it's, it's it's wonderful inspiration for yeah. the kind of um, conversations and dialogues we should be having to to um, you know, with other people in our teams to, to make the user experience of what we work on better. Yeah, this has been great because uh, I think ultimately like good user experience, like, it, like everybody has to be involved. So um, yeah, like the more people you can get thinking about these different things, it, it makes a big difference. So thank you, Katie, for making us smarter about our websites and better designers. Thanks for having me. So, so this... This actually got me thinking about how we might be drawing the wrong conclusion sometimes when we're doing user research or testing because we obviously know that these metrics, they're tied, the tied to speed, load times, um, content jumping around unpredictably, all part of the user experience. And so if you get them right, you can eliminate them as contributing to the overall experience because what could easily happen is that you draw the wrong conclusions from usage. So if people click in the wrong area, for example, it could be that they actually click there because of a slow font load. And also there's this potential for users not really to be able to articulate why they are un unhappy with something. So they could describe a website as confusing, even when it's not really confusing in terms of language and structure, but actually because of how the website is performing in, t in terms of response times and small delays and load times. So I've come across this number of, of 100 milliseconds many times, and I think Katie uh, mentioned it as well. So 100 milliseconds, that's not something that we are truly aware is affecting us, but it often is. So when these invisible metrics are affecting us, we often blame our unease on, on something else because we want to be able to articulate the reasons for our behavior. So uh, not paying an enough attention to these metrics that Katie is talking about can cause you to put loads of work into the wrong thing and some something that actually isn't the, the culprit that is causing the problem. Yeah, you're quite right, Per. I mean, some of these things are, I think would be very easy to miss under a layer of something else, whether it's 
how you interview people or how to try and express themselves or whether you're looking at uh, high level statistics that don't really reveal the true thing that's happening there. I mean, that's something I know that I come across a fair bit these days is in conversations. um, It's not unusual to hear someone say, oh, yeah, I forgot we have a cookie banner. Because, of course, when you're working with a website, then you've said yes or whatever. You've answered the question years ago, probably. And I found a lot of people don't empty their cookies for their own website on a daily, weekly basis. So you, you get you lose that memory of, of how that it is to experience your website as a f- new user coming to it for the first time. And the same goes for the, the, the fonts as well. Um, I, hadn't really, I hadn't thought about that at all. That, no, that really blew my mind, yeah, the, um, the fonts thing, yeah. yeah. I mean, plenty of times you're working <laughs> with, with clients where they've, they've got their own font, especially for the branding one, though, you know, the main headings and stuff like we mentioned. And, and that's something when, you know, it's going to be downloaded, it's going to be cached, it's going to be downloaded, you're going to have it installed in whatever tool you're working with to design the site. So you don't think about how slow it might be for that to appear for certain people in certain situations. And could be really disruptive depending on how the actual website is built. And so, so it can feel kind of overwhelming, I suppose, listening to this and and realizing that you as a designer, oh, I'm thinking about all these things over here. Now I, you, you're telling me that I also need to think about this as well. And often that is not really what we want you to feel, but rather that here's this thing that you actually can impact the user experience. It's good that you at least have some perspective, perspective and understanding of what it is. And then you can start talking about it with people and having conversations because these are important conversations to be having. Yeah, and I think the um, well, the, the Lighthouse tool, the Lighthouse report um, in, in Chrome is something that enables conversations the whole thing with the traffic light system of the of the report there if you know if you've got red or amber or whatever coming up on that report you, you don't necessarily have to understand the details that become that come lower down in the report um you don't have to understand how you fix it but that then can be a start of a conversation with someone who does know what to do about this and now you're aware of the fact that it can make a real positive difference to the end user experience um, I still think, I mean, there's some things I, I, I think that we can be better at thinking about, and not just fonts and so on, but the, lar- the largest um, um, convertible paint, having a, th- having a think about, you know, what is the biggest bit of my design? Which bit is probably going to appear um, well, first or later or whatever? You, you, can, you can maybe put some effort into deconstructing your design and understanding right. how it will be presented. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. And actually start listening, listing the elements uh, of your web page by size and like talking about each of them and understanding how important is this? Is this, is this the right order for them to load? Uh, stuff like that. Mm. I'm supposing the hero image will actually be one of those th- that is the biggest. Yeah. I mean, God, that's going to be the, the big thing for most of us, um, I guess, if you're working on a, on a front page of a website or uh, an article. I mean, yeah, it's, it's going to be a big image on a lot of pages. So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. So now we're straight into a conversation about how we deal with that image and how, because uh, it's going to be a big part of the page that's painted. Um, maybe we does get it does get us into a conversation about image formats, or maybe we're the ones yeah. providing the images. And now we can, I reckon, according to Katie and what we've looked at, be confident in using WebP as an image yeah. format. And honestly, that's not a conversation I've had a lot with uh, with people about the WebP image format. Uh, and given, like you checked before, that it's actually supported by by basically everything that's being used out there, 
then why aren't we using it? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I mean, I'd heard about it a while back, and, but I hadn't started using it because I didn't think we were quite ready for it. But exactly. But now in the, in the post-Internet Explorer age, um, it's, yeah, it seems to be really quite safe to use. There was, there was one caveat, I think, was um, older versions of MacOS, Safari on older versions of MacOS. Yeah. And when I say older, so, so, yeah. it was like pre-November big 2020. Sur. Big yeah. Sur, yeah, pre-November yeah. um, 2020, if you haven't updated or can't. So now that feels that feels safe and definitely safe to have a conversation about it now. Also appreciated that that Katie did mention that it's really important not to look at just the uh, calculated metrics, but also make an effort to to simulate and test with with real stuff, with real devices, with real people uh, to get uh, the true insights. Yeah, and there you're into kind of maturity of your organization of how far you want to take this um, um, well, this aspect of web performance and design, um, but. Um, Start with the small things. Start with the Lighthouse report and see how you're doing. We did mention in the show that we had previously talked about carousels. I think you found some episodes where we did. Well, there's one I think we can we can recommend to listen to. It's uh, from nine years ago now, episode 57. Um, it's actually a link show. Um, and back then, we had a different way of naming our episodes. So it was James and Pear Avoid Spinning. Um, and in, in that link show, it's actually, we talk about a satirical article that's talking about um, carousel, carousel first, mo- oh, carousel first development, I think is what he calls it. Um, so joking on the whole mobile first. Um, oh, that would be a had. nice walk down history lane to yeah. actually give a listen. And if you'd like to contribute to funding or producing UX Podcast, then visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. What do you get, Per, when you melt the Wizard of Oz? I don't know, James. What do you get when you melt the Wizard of Oz? The Wizard of Fluid Ounces. <laughs>